Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa. Erin. I have a news witch question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're recording this on Wednesday. By the time everybody hears this, the vice presidential debate will have already happened. So... Mm. Wrong answers only. What is your news witch prediction for what's going to happen in the debate tonight between Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris? Okay. So we know that they're separated by some amount of plexiglass right now, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I feel like tonight is going to be Mike Pence's uh, carry moment (laughs) and that... Kamala is going to trigger him so much that like pig blood just dumps from the ceiling onto him, just like in the movie. Um, Because Mm -hmm. I think that he literally is not going to be able to control all of his discomfort. And I don't know if he has rage, but he'll definitely have discomfort. So yeah, that's what I think. I think that he's going to have his carry moment tonight. I predict that there is going to be a moment tonight where Kamala snaps. Like not snaps, like loses it and can't get it back. But I think that in debate prep, they will be like, Kamala, don't get to the point where you are just like letting it go. And I think there's going to be one moment where she does. I think the people are going to love it. I think that pundits are going to be like, she went too far. But I think you and I are going to be like, that's the best thing Kamala Harris has ever done. I don't know what it is. That's my prediction. Okay. Well, I guess we will see tomorrow. We will have to tweet tonight if we were right. (laughs) Yes. Well, maybe not me for reasons, Alyssa, which I've told you about. (laughs) Well, I know. I was giving you cover, dude. (laughs) We'll tweet about it tonight. Okay. This week, leaders Stacey Abrams and Grace Parra join us to tackle the following questions. What have we learned from the four years since the Access Hollywood tapes release? If 2020 were a book, what would it be called? Do we owe shitty people sympathy when bad things happen to them? All this and more right now. Okay, let's get to the news first. Um, The big news this week, um, in a week of big news, is that the president got sick, and he got sick enough that he had to go to the hospital. And then somehow, miraculously, three days later, he recovered from being sick and left the hospital. Uh, This during a time that it was physically impossible to not still have the virus because the virus stays in your body for a lot longer than he was in the hospital. Um, he is shedding virus everywhere, shedding virus all over the White House, shedding virus all over D.C. He's like muddy footprints just tracking through everything. Alyssa, what do you make of the president's illness and his um, miraculous recovery? 
Uh, well, let's see. We know he's not recovered because that's not how COVID works. So, I mean, Aaron, I guess the most disturbing, destructive, wrong part of the whole thing is that actually the White House can't tell us when his last negative COVID test was. So we have no idea at like what point in his illness he is. So two things are possible. One, he was positive for quite a while, lied about it, lied on the honor system at the debate with Joe Biden saying he was negative when he was not, and potentially maybe is like at the end of his illness right now potentially, but that would mean he lied to the other man and put in danger Joe Biden. Or he really tested positive when they're saying that he did, which was the end of last week, and is just so juiced up on drugs that that nobody else really has access to that his symptoms are suppressed, but he is not not sick. Yeah. There are so many question marks, and those question marks are completely things that are by his own design. Essentially, this administration has no credibility. They've lied so many times. And watching the public's reaction to the announcement of his illness and his hospitalization and the way that the media was reporting on it, I think it's clear that nobody thinks he's telling the truth ever. And all the information that we were getting about his illness, the people telling us those things could have had reasons to lie. Alyssa, you and I disagreed on this. We were texting back and forth, and I was a little bit more like glass half full and you were glass half empty. You said that you were concerned that this would make Trump more sympathetic. Can you explain that view? Yes. Well, Aaron, it turns out I was very, very wrong. And this was at the beginning of the weekend when we didn't know how this was going to play out. So I was afraid that he was going to get the virus, that he he has the virus. I was Mm -hmm. afraid that his uh, experience and communication would be something to the effect of, oh, my God, this was bad. I hear you. I feel you. I see you, America. You know, I'm going to make sure that tests are better and that people get money to live on and I'm going to pass the HEROES Act. I legit thought he was going to pass the HEROES Act out of this. (laughs) So you were right to say I was going to be wrong. But see, to me, I guess I went to the super dark place because I thought that was like worst case scenario because he wouldn't have actually changed. Mm -hmm. He would have realized there was a better strategy for winning in November. Mm -hmm. But I was wrong. I was wrong. Yeah. I mean, I thought that you meant that people would see him as like a relatable guy because he's gotten sick. That too. Which I still think is a little bit of a possibility. Like, you know, I could have been wrong. My immediate knee-jerk reaction was everybody that likes him likes him because he projects this fake version of strength all the time. And this runs uh, in conflict with that. But it could be possible that at the next debate, he, you know, seems like he's trying really hard and people feel bad for him or something like that. Well, no, but you know what, though? Here's why my theory is completely blown to smithereens at this point, because there are people who support him who have had COVID, Mm -hmm. right? And know that it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think for him to have been able to play that card, he would have had to admit to the symptoms The problem is he's not at all empathetic if he's like, yeah, I went to this fucking world-class hospital. I have no symptoms. I am good. It wasn't that bad. Like he's, Mm -hmm. he's blown his chance now to use my strategy. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like passing the HEROES Act would be a winning strategy. And it is really baffling that now Trump is not taking the W. It's there. We were talking about this today. Um, Today, Wednesday, the 7th is the four-year anniversary Mm. of the Access Hollywood tape coming out. Yep. 
it was my first Friday working at the Daily Beast. And I had tickets to go see Sigur Rós that night, which is a uh, a band that a lot of white people like. <laughs> it's a Scandinavian kind of like atmospheric band that's supposed to have a, a great live show. And I couldn't go mm. because I had to do a bunch of cable news where I went on and I was like, Donald Trump said some pretty bad stuff. And I remember thinking that day, wow, he's done. He's toast. I remember being in the newsroom on that day and everybody crowding around our national editor's computer as he played the audio of Donald Trump saying that when you're a star, they let you do it. You grab him by the pussy. I don't ask. I just kiss. And, you know, at that time, four years ago, Hillary Clinton was killing Donald Trump in the polls. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, do you see parallels between then and now? Yeah. So Democrat is killing Trump in the polls. As per usual, we talked about this a lot before, and I think that the circumstances are still different, but the lesson is the same, which is that we have to be super vigilant that Trump is scarily Teflon, you know, like all the things that would stick to and destroy any other person. I mean, I don't know. Do they make him stronger? I don't even know. I don't know. He's like the Teflon that gives people cancer in that Mark Ruffalo movie. Malignant tumor. See? It all comes back to Trump being a malignant tumor. (laughs) It does. I just think that that's the, you know, that didn't stop him. Something that we thought at a minimum would have repelled white suburban women from voting for him did not at all repel them from voting for him. Mm -hmm. So I think the lesson is that you just, we have to like leave it all on the field. You know, you can't take anything for granted. And a vote for anyone but Biden is a vote for Trump. I had to do the math there in my head. I was like, wait, what is this logic problem I'm trying to express? (laughs) I mean, the similarities between now and four years ago are that Trump is way behind in the polls, like double digits behind in the polls. And uh, a Democrat is winning. The differences, though, are that there are a lot fewer undecided voters. You know, mm-hmm. as any pollster worth their salt will point out, a uh, lot, lot fewer undecided voters. Joe Biden has a lot fewer people who really don't like him. And Joe Biden is over 50 percent in some polls. Yep. And you can't beat that. Like, you you know, if, if he wins 52 percent of the vote in, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, whatever, it's over. Yeah. And also, you know, there's some swing states that the swing state polling looks good and the way that they've polled people has changed in between right. 2016 and now. Now they're sampling more people that they would think would would have been likely Trump right. voters that were undersampled back then. But I think, Alyssa, you made this point over text and I think it was really salient. What was my point? About how people how people should be between now and the election. We're up. Oh, vigilant. We have to be vigilant. We can take nothing for granted. This is 100% giving 100% every day from now until election day. Because all the things that you just said about the differences between now and then are true. The other thing is Donald Trump is a cheater. He is a liar. And his supporters, and I'm including Mitch McConnell and the entire GOP in this, will do anything to win. So... Everything that we can do to make election night a landslide, though we know we will probably not have a result on election day, is incumbent upon us. So our victory must be total and humiliating. That's exactly right. Not like Apollo Creed. We've talked about this because Donald right. Trump is Apollo Creed. We need to be the Rocky where we just yes. keep our keep our heads down and keep working 
and like feel inspired to to go all the way to election day. Run through snow, drink those eggs, <laughs> fucking go up the stairs. It's like do all of it. And the whole time be a dedicated family man who more than anything cares about Adrian. I mean, Adrian. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just want to like call Joe Biden up and be like, win. Yeah, just win. All right, Rocky Two. We're in the uh, election of 2020 is Rocky Two. All right, we're about to take a break. But first, we asked to hear from you about pet issues. That is issues that you think are very important that aren't being talked enough about. And we heard back from a lot of you because you guys are smart and awesome. And here's one of them. We're going to listen to one of your pet issues and hear what you have to say. Hey, I'm Rick Levy from Denver, Colorado, and my pet issue is biodiversity loss. In 2019, the UN filed a report that found about a million plant and animal species are at risk of becoming extinct in the coming decades. Something like this is going to lead to a breakdown of our ecosystems and just the natural world as we know it. Um, it's a huge threat to our economic security and also just our social well-being. Extinctions are mostly caused by habitat destruction and land use change, but this is all going to be exacerbated by climate change and pollution. To me, it's just really sad that we are losing our world's species and our world's plants and animals and fungi, and it's not a topic that is ever discussed really on a political national scale. Thank you so much. Love the show. I love this pet issue. Love I it. think it's such. A, I think it's such an important pet issue. It goes along with other issues that are vitally important that don't get talked enough about, you know, like climate change and all that. A thing that's super important when I think about biodiversity loss is that we don't understand how losing some species impacts our ability right. to live in the world. We don't fully understand the impact of like, you know, a depleting population of a specific kind of spider, for example, would impact uh, the you know crops because those spiders eat the things that tend to eat the crops. So anyway, I think I think it's super important. Alyssa, how about you? No, I totally agree. And it made me think of a couple days ago, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Prince William and Kate had Lewis, George, and Charlotte do a Zoom with Sir David Attenborough. What? To talk about animals. Uh, it is so charming. <gasps> I couldn't even handle it. So the three little kids were interviewing Sir David Attenborough over Zoom, and they released it. And they're basically asking him about animals and, like, who does he think the next animal to go extinct oh. is. And it was so charming. And you know what? I thought about it when I watched it. I'm like, I haven't seen anything like this in a very long time. And, you know, this week, the fat bear, fat bear was decided up in Katmai. And, you know, it makes me think that, like, there are things that people do to try to highlight, you know, the lives and plights of these these animals and these causes. But so I totally agree with him because Trump has made the world such a dumpster fire that we stories like this just get totally 15th page of the newspaper. 100%. I just finished a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which I highly mm. recommend. It's written by a woman who is a botanist and she's a, a member of an indigenous tribe. And so she like switches back and forth between talking about Native American spirituality and like what we know given like our scientific access to knowledge when it comes to plants. Mm -hmm. It is A, one of the most soothing things I've ever read. And B, really highlights what this listener brought up, which is that, you know, the biodiversity that used to exist in North America was something that was really essential 
and important to like the people who lived here. And a loss of that represents a loss mm -hmm. of, you know, not only like modern people's access to livelihood, um, but also, you know, people who are descended from ancient people's access to like their ancestors and that way of life. So we'll put a link to the book in the show notes because I really cannot recommend it enough. And it really, it really dovetails well with this topic. Okay. That is a great pet issue. If you have a pet issue um, and you want to leave us a 30 second voice memo and send it to us, you can do that and email us at hysteria at crooked.com. Okay. Now we're going to actually take a break, but when we come back, we have an interview with Stacey Abrams. Welcome back. We are so excited to welcome our next guest, Leader Stacey Abrams. Leader Abrams is the founder of Fair Fight Action. She is a former Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia, former minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, and a pretty good author of romance novels, if I do say so myself. Please welcome Leader Stacey Abrams. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So you're the founder of Fair Fight a grassroots organization designed to address the issue of voter suppression. What are some of the biggest obstacles we're facing before November 3rd and on November 3rd? I mean, there are three categories. Basically, we are watching Republicans cheat, lie, and steal. Uh, the cheating comes in that we are watching litigation that is attempting to limit who has access to the ballot, limit polling places, limit who can use absentee ballots, limit remedies to allow absentee ballots to be counted. But at the same time, they're also attempting to intimidate voters. You may have heard about their intent to raise an army of 50,000 uh, voter poll watchers, basically voter intimidators, using both RNC resources as well as coordinating with groups like True the Vote and Honest Elections. And so that's the cheating. The lying is the misinformation campaign that has been out there. The work being done most perniciously by the president of the United States, who is aggressively attempting to mislead voters about what their rights are, about how they can cast their votes, but also about the security of the process. We know that absentee ballots, for example, are a very easy, accessible, and safe way to vote. And yet we have watched the president try to conflate uh, bad information with just outright lies. And we've also seen, of course, the hostile takeover of the U.S. Postal Service. And so they are attempting to really undermine how people feel about the election and undermine their knowledge of what the election means. And of course, the most aggressive one is this, you know, it's cloaked as he's refusing to a peaceful transfer of power. But what he's really saying is, I'm going to throw a public temper tantrum if I don't get what I want. And you should not trust the results if it doesn't look the way I think they should look. Mm -hmm. And then the theft piece is this aggressive use of executive power by state officials, but also as of today by the Justice Department. There was a memo just today that allows the Justice Department to go back against 40 years, roughly, of a decision made in the 1980s that said, if the DOJ finds out there's any question about investigations regarding elections, we're not going to do anything that would actually interfere or tip the balance in the election. Just today, we learned that there was a memo that went out from Attorney General Barr saying, eh, this time, eh, go ahead. And we've already seen this in play because we know that the Attorney General briefed Donald Trump based on misinformation and this sort of histrionic 
question of whether ballots that have been apparently tossed aside in error, whether this is some you know part of some deep state conspiracy to deny him nine votes in Pennsylvania. So we know that they are going to also use executive power to steal the outcome. But I say all of that to say, we're prepared. On the progressive side, for the first time in my memory, we are organized and ready and funded in a way that we have just not been before. And that is a dramatic turn uh, from if even four years ago when we refused to have a public conversation about what voter suppression would look like. So it's a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> No, it's very good. We appreciate it. <laughs> Voter suppression isn't a new issue that we're facing. It's been happening since the beginning of our democracy and made worse by the repeal of the Voting Rights Act. Why do you think that voter suppression as a pressing issue is really just now getting national attention? So I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, I wrote a book about it called Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for Fair America. I did a movie about it called All In, The Fight for Democracy. I even ran a campaign that brought it up, uh, but that was less intentional, just sort of it, it happened that way. But here's the thing. We've had it, voter suppression has existed for so long. We have basically integrated it into our assumptions of how the system works. It is a feature of American democracy. It is not seen as a bug. And we've been indoctrinated to believe that some of the most egregious examples are purely logical. We take, for example, the notion that you have to register yourself in every single place where you live and know the dates by which you have to tell people that's where you are, that that's completely normal. It is actually an aberration. We are an outlier among democratized nations. But this point of entry issue with being able to register to vote, this is our key to democracy. We are one of the few nations that makes it hard to even start to use this fundamental premise of who we are as a nation. And yet, for most Americans, we think, well, of course we have to register to vote. Why wouldn't we? Yeah, and actually in most countries, you don't have to. You get registered automatically. You are not required to learn electoral law to participate in democracy. Another example is this notion of voter ID. We've had voter identification since the beginning. No one could just walk up and say, hey, I'm John Smith, I wanna vote. They were going to figure out which John Smith you were, the indentured servant or the landowner. And yet we have allowed in the last 20 years this idea of extreme voter ID where you have to produce documentation that you probably can't get or have to spend hundreds of dollars trying to search for information that it's going to be difficult to secure that does nothing to actually prove you are who you say you are better than what you already had. And so we've, again, been convinced that this process of having to jump higher and higher hurdles is just like being able to buy a beer. No, actually it's not. Buying a beer is actually easier because for a lot of folks trying to get these documents, like the 100-year-old black woman in Wisconsin who had to prove that she had an original birth certificate, even though in Jim Crow, during the, you know, the legal apartheid that existed for 150 years in our country, she was legally not permitted to be born in a hospital and therefore was not entitled to that birth certificate. So one of the reasons it's been hard is that we have baked it into our understanding of what it means to be an American. But the other piece is that we've, on the other side, those of us who have been fighting against it, we were taught that if you talked about it, it would scare voters. In 2018, and even before then, I've always been of the opinion, it only scares people if you give them a problem and no solution. 
And so I've always approached it with the notion that I'm going to tell you what's wrong because you can't fight an enemy you can't see or don't understand, but then I'm immediately going to tell you what you can do about it to push back. And so I think in this last two years, because we have seen election after election since the fall of the Voting Rights Act, we've seen more and more elections be visibly tampered with by voter suppression. I think we finally reached this inflection point where, you know, even if you didn't believe you should talk about it, it's too hard not to. Leader Abrams, for almost a decade, you've been an instrumental part in pushing Georgia toward its status as a battleground state, which growing up, I could not have imagined that Georgia was going to be purple in my young adulthood. And it is. So has the state really always been red or has decades of voter suppression hidden its true purple status? So I I would say we were for 130 years under democratic leadership, we were basically in a really bad arranged marriage. So this is a state where you had Dixiecrats, you had black civil rights leaders, you had Northern progressives who got lost on their way to Florida, were all part of same, you know, collective that called themselves the Democrats in Georgia. Around the 2000s, the arranged marriage broke up and the Republicans got custody. (laughs) So for about 15 years, the state truly was deeply red. And, And I mean in the sense that those who were registered to vote, those who were actively participating, and those who had power were largely Republican. But if you start looking around 2006, Um, there was the sort of glimmer of possibility, but it really didn't come to fruition until around 2014, 2015. And that's when we were able to match opportunity with aggressive behavior. That's when I launched the New Georgia Project. We, at that point, had almost 800,000 people of color who were not registered to vote in Georgia. And at that point, the margin of difference in elections was roughly 200, 250,000 votes. Registering those voters and getting them actively engaged was going to transform the electorate for the first time. But the challenge has always been that the calculus with registration is that when you're registering new people who did not register on their own, the likelihood of their voting is about 20%. And so if you have 800,000 people, you cannot assume 800,000 registrants are all going to turn out and vote. And so the goal has been to move us into purple by getting them registered and get us into blue by turning that registration into activation and participation. And the numbers I'll give you are these. In 2012, Barack Obama lost the state of Georgia by eight points. In 2016, Hillary Clinton lost the state of Georgia by five points. My election, the margin of difference was 1.4%, but we also had the highest turnout of Democrats in the history of the state of Georgia, and we have the most diverse turnout where we tripled Latino, triple Asian Pacific Islander, increased Black participation by 40%, increased youth participation by 139%, but also increased the white percentage of the vote for Democrats for the first time in 30 years. I think we've now hit that tipping point where we truly are a blue to purple state, but we have to actually be able to prove that in an election without the Secretary of State being in charge of the outcome. Hmm. Trump keeps exploiting his platform to try and sow doubt about our voting process since he clearly does not think he's going to win right now. How can we right now guarantee a free and fair election by November? Is that even possible? There's no way to guarantee it. And I'm very intentional about the language I use. My mission is to mitigate the harm of voter suppression. Because to your earlier question, Alyssa, we've had voter suppression for 243 years. 
the targets have actually long been the same. It is for a very long time been black people. And as we added more communities of color, communities of color, Native Americans all, have always been a target. Women by and large, depending on which group they sit in, have been targets. The poor have always been a target. That's why in the very beginning, only landowners could vote, not the, the rabble in their mind. And so we're not going to undo in two years or four years what has been 243 years in the making, but we can mitigate its effect. And that goes back to the fundamental issue of why we haven't talked about it. And, and that's Aaron's question. We haven't talked about it because we didn't know if we could defeat it. And my belief is that we are going to have a freer and more fair election in 2020 because we have galvanized millions of people to take up arms in the form of ballots against those who are purveying this oppression. It is not going to be a permanent fix. And we've seen that, you know, Mark Elias has been filing lawsuit after lawsuit, a string of victories. But as it moves through the courts, we are watching some of those victories be undone by a conservative appeals court or conservative uh, Supreme Court. And so, yes, they're going to be those who continue to make voter suppression the law of the land. But we are doing better because, number one, we're doing something. Number two, people are aware. And for those who went through primaries facing voter suppression for the first time when they thought it was just a myth and then they stood in line for eight hours, they get it now. Those who wanted to vote by mail but were told that COVID is not a sufficient reason to fear for your life, they get it now. And so I think that what's happening is that we will have a better election than we would have before. But we have to remember, as I said at the outset, the other side knows we're coming and they've been planning on this and, and working at this for 20 years. These are not new tactics. These have been instrumental and very conscientiously built and so when you think about the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, that didn't just happen. It was part of a strategy that's been in place since 1965. It just took them a while to get it done. But you know that the minute it fell, the state of Texas passed the most restrictive voter ID law within hours. And so we have to remember that the fight against voter suppression doesn't end on November 4th. The fight will continue until we actually have free and fair elections in our country. But I believe that's possible. That is so nice to hear, honestly, uh, because, you know, especially in the last few days with all of the news about what's kind of matriculating through the courts, it's so nice to hear that you have a glass half full if we keep going sort of attitude toward this. So thank you. Well, I, I actually approach it differently. I think the glass is half full. It's just probably poison. So we, <laughs> we are all enlisted to find the antidote. That's why we do this work, because you know, yeah, they're, they're poisons, but they're antivenoms, they're, they're, they're cures. We can find it. We just have to keep working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Um, I think I know the, the answer to this question already, but I still want to hear you say it. Um, how are you feeling about the Senate race between Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock? I think that Reverend Warnock is going to win. Yes, really? What we are watching play out in Georgia is that people are disgusted by her attempt to buy an election to pretend to be someone she is not, or maybe reveal who she has always been. And we are seeing the man that Raphael Warnock has always been. I've known him for 15 years. He was, you know, at my side when we were fighting Brian Kemp to register voters. He was, you know, working hard when we were all fighting for criminal justice reform. This is a man of not only conviction, but proven effort. But even more importantly, and I just want to dispel it for your, your listeners, you're going to read, well, he could, he might make it to the top two, but Democrats lose runoffs. We got to remember, we were losing runoffs 
when Republicans outnumbered us. Of course we were losing. And before then, Democrats won all of the runoffs because Democrats controlled everything for 130 years. So there is proof that we at one point won runoffs. We are now returning to that point. And if we meet this moment with the enthusiasm, the energy, and the urgency that I know will attend this election, he absolutely can win. And John Ossoff will win against David Perdue. I love that. Um, I just was, we were, we were talking about this in our group text. Did you see um, that uh, Kelly Loeffler tweeted that weird WWF video with the COVID? <laughs> what was your, what was your thought when you saw that a U.S. Senator was tweeting that sort of nonsense? So I actually have worked with Kelly. I was the lawyer for the Atlanta Dream. I worked actually for one of the, so I worked for the very first owner. I worked for and helped negotiate the second sale to Kathy Betty, who was the owner. And then Kelly and Mary Brock joined the team. And so I was one of the lawyers involved in that transaction. And then I stayed around for a while to assist with some additional projects. I got to know Kelly, tangentially is not the right word, but superficially. I will tell you that I had not expected the tenor of campaign that she has run. Hmm. Um, it's been steeped in a kind of denigration and vitriol that is just unexpected and disappointing. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to win. Didn't want her to win before. Don't want her to win now. But I'm deeply disappointed in the kind of campaign a sitting U.S. senator is willing to run where she is willing to excoriate a justice movement that seeks simply to say that Black Lives Matter. She's willing to use the kind of epithets that Donald Trump uses to ascribe the virus not to a disease, but to a nation. And by extension, to create the kind of demonization of community that she knows better about. And she's refusing to take responsibility for some really poor choices that she's made. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited about being able to vote for Raphael Warnock with my absentee ballot that I'm filling <laughs> out today. And I am absolutely certain he will be uh, a fantastic U.S. Senator. Okay. So we always like to end our interviews on a lighter note. Yes. As, as Aaron mentioned, we are very obsessed with your career as a romance novelist previously. <laughs> uh, so to this part of the conversation, we welcome Selena Montgomery. Hold, give me a moment. <clears throat> yes. Great. So, <laughs> Selena, since some of your novels include titles like Reckless, Secrets and Lies, Deception, and Hidden Sins, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask, if 2020 were a romance novel, how would you end this year's story? How would I end it or how would I entitle it? Both. <laughs> you can title it. How do you end it? Whatever. Both of them. Well, the title would be Confusions and Regrets. <laughs> <laughs> But the end, of course, would result in a very, you know, beleaguered heroine called America welcoming the man of her dreams, Joe Biden, who <laughs> recognizes that she is capable of taking care of herself, but wants to be part of helping her achieve her dreams and realize her finest reality. It's a book I'd buy. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I'd read that book. I, I would 100% read that book. Um it might mess up my Amazon <laughs> recommendations, but that's okay. Yeah, a lot of friends <laughs> who got really, say. really confusing recommendations when they started buying my books to support me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leader Abrams, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for all the work you do. It has been my pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. See ya. 
This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Welcome back, everybody. We are at the part of the show where we are joined by one other person this week, but she's enough people for two people. I think we can all agree. Um, Grace Parra, welcome to the show today. How are you? What is up, you guys? I missed you. I missed you. It's been a minute. So much has happened. Everything's changed. You married little Pepper. You married you. little Pepper. I'm a, I'm a married little Pepper now. I'm a totally different woman. Every Finally, now that I belong to a man, I'm whole. I'm complete. That's Woo! great. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. No nervous little pepper no longer. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank um, you guys. Thank you. It's been very exciting. Yeah. Also your pictures look beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It was it, you know we Niall and I have been uh, you know we scheduled our wedding for this September and it was going to be a big thing and you know 180 of our closest friends and family invited and then the pandemic hit and so we decided that we wanted to wait until it's super safe to do a party right with all the people that we love but we still wanted to do a civil ceremony so we were like screw it let's fucking let's just go so yeah. we did it and and it was it was really intimate and small and cute and we ate sliders with you know like 10 people and my family zoomed in from Houston and from Mexico and from all over. And it was, it was really, it was really beautiful and it's been fun. And then actually, Aaron, we spent a few days in Sedona. Um, Oh, you did? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Which was lovely. 
Yeah, Sedona is awesome. Um, I am currently in Sedona right now. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I'm I'm in Sedona, Arizona, and you know, yesterday I was up in Flagstaff, and good news, folks, like all Biden signs. That's great. I mean, Flagstaff is I, blue anyway, which I which I have heard, but yeah, Sedona, all Biden. We drove when we came here. We came through Phoenix because that's the quicker way. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see. We didn't see any like giant truck trailers with Trump on the side and. I didn't see nearly as much like aggressive Trumpiness as I would have expected in Arizona. That's positive. I I have to tell you up here, it has been Trump country, but now the Democrat signs have finally arrived and it's like full <laughs> lawn. It is lawn sign wars on every street. And I'm so excited to see it. People whose signs haven't come, they're just making their own. But uh I, it's way more Biden-Harris than I ever would have imagined. So I found that very heartening. I'm very yeah. excited about the by dawn Dawn, signs. yes. Clever, clever. Yeah. Very clever. Yeah. Especially it's... with the orange swoop of hair on some of them. Oh, yes. Aaron, you got to go to the restaurant Elote. We can uh, oh, sidebar okay, about Grace. this, but you got to go. It's very good. I've got some, <laughs> I've got some residual pain from that. Uh, because <laughs> we've wanted to go since the last time we came here in June. Uh-huh. We really wanted to go, but Elote was closed. Uh-huh. And um, this time it's open, but it's only taking reservations. And they're booked up for a month. Oh, no. So oh. you can also do takeout. So yesterday, starting at 5 p.m. when they opened up the call lines, I started calling every <gasps> two minutes. And it was busy the whole time. So Alote and I are not meant to be, but yeah, we've been, we've been lusting after it for a while. So I will hopefully be able to nab some by, by some miracle by the time we have to leave. You can go in person and order takeout that way. If it's not too far away from where you are. Yeah. So we did highly recommend it. Okay, I'm shaking wow. my head yes like I knew that. Alyssa's <laughs> like, yes, Alyssa's like, hello. Alote. We don't know. We all, we all know it. We all know it. Um, well, okay. So let's get into the kind of, look, we could call this whole episode I Feel Petty because um, this, since it has come out that people that were at the Amy Coney Barrett um, nomination ceremony in the Rose Garden, a ceremony that was designed to imitate the Ruth Bader Ginsburg announcement um, in direct defiance of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish and also nominating a woman who promises to undo everything Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. Um, There was some, the feelings around all of these people in the Trump administration taking zero precautions, mocking COVID-19, acting as though it's not a big deal, um, causing mass confusion and then falling ill with it. I've had some mixed feelings around that. Um, not necessarily feelings that I'm proud to have, but I have to say the ugliest I've ever felt on the inside was on Tuesday when news broke that Stephen Miller had COVID. Let's explore these. Um, let's, let's talk about it. I want to start with you, Grace, since you're, since it's been the longest since I've seen you. Are we supposed to feel sorry for these people? And is it wrong to not feel entirely sympathetic? I am so glad that we're talking about this today because truly I'm conflicted. I'm truly conflicted. I admire the people who are able to go on Twitter and say, 
fucking die, fuck boys, because I <laughs> want so badly. And I do feel that. I feel it. I feel it intrinsically with every bone in my body, this whole, like, especially the last, like, two weeks where I've been getting married and I'm just trying to enjoy a goddamn mini moon with my husband. And yet there's so much news that I just feel consumed by it. And both of us are on our phones and we're, you know, in the midst of, of, of experiencing this in real time with everybody else when all we want to do is to take a break. But this little Catholic girl side of me has such a hard time wishing ill on anybody. And that's where the conflict arises for me, because I, I genuinely uh, feel that the schadenfreude of the moment is wonderful. It is delicious. It's delectable. I'm just like suckling at the teat of this right now. But I feel like I have to do it quietly because God forbid, you know, this is my, I don't know, those of you who grew up with curandera type mothers or abuelas who are like, you know, basically preaching karma, that if you wish ill on somebody else and it's going to come right back at you. So even though I feel that all these people really deserve it, it's very hard to express that. Um, it's very hard to express that. That's, that's, yeah. that, those are the kind of gut reactions that I've had in the last couple of weeks. I mean, don't you think that America kind of prepaid a little bit, though? Like, mm. you know, now that they've had all of this, like all of these months and months of not only deaths and the 200,000 plus tragedies and all of the families that experience loss, sometimes multiple losses mm -hmm. in the same family. Um, after all of that, doesn't it feel a little bit like now that the people causing it are actually suffering consequences that maybe people are allowed to be a little bit like, ha. <laughs> I told you, it does. It does feel like that. But what I struggle with in that regard is what feels cathartic versus what feels productive. So in other words, okay. how do you channel that energy into saying more than just ha, but actually giving a directive or trying to trying to do, because we do this election coming up in what, 27 days now. So it's like this ticking time bomb that's also happening concurrently with the feelings that we're trying to digest. And, um, I, and I do feel like, like some people are spending a little bit too much time on the ha of it and not enough on the productivity of it all. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, what are your thoughts on this whole complicated, um, emotional situation we're in right now? I don't know. I don't care. Do you? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's all. Every time I see one of it, I just say that in my head. I'm like, I don't care. Do you? Like, I don't care that they're sick. I don't care. They, I care as much about them being sick as they care about me being sick or whatever. So the only thing I care about is that because they are so reckless, science-denying, that like the fact that they are sick means that other people will definitely get infected, right? Because they're not taking precautions. So it's like, well, I don't care personally that they are personally sick. I don't. They also have better health care than 90% of America. I care that they're definitely getting other people sick. And mm -hmm. those people don't have the same access to health care and things like that. So, but like... Do I care if Stephen Miller gets a fever? Absolutely not. I don't. I don't care. <laughs> you know? I mean, you guys know I had COVID. It was not severe. Like, here's the other thing. Like, COVID, mild COVID is like sick, can't get out of bed, but like can breathe. Moderate COVID is like can't breathe, but not intubated. And severe COVID is like you're in the hospital, you're intubated, and you're on an ECMO machine. So like I was sick. But like watching this, it's like if they're even as – they don't even seem as sick as I was. And I was like, I don't really have it that bad. And so I just don't even know – like truthful – this is the smallest, darkest part of me. If none of them get sick with symptoms, 
like the COVID denying is going to be at like the ho- the hoax of it yes, all. Yes, like the yes. most high ho- high profile people in the country to have gotten COVID, other than Tom Hanks and Rita. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no, you know, there's no. I, I just feel like it would it would be so bad for science in America if they don't get some symptoms. I mean, but the president got sick and he yeah, got he does. symptoms. And like, you know, he visibly, even though he was trying to project strength and like masculine virility in the, his cartoon 80s version of whatever that is, he still is like visibly ill uh-huh. and mm-hmm. uh, tweeting like a guy who is not entirely right in the head right now. Because, because when you take medications, like when you have a disease like COVID, a possible side effect of it could be a uh, little bit of mental fogginess. That's uh-huh. a reported symptom. And the drugs that he's on um, also can cause a little bit of mental fogginess. I was, I had to take um, steroid when I was a kid and I, cause I had asthma and um, it does make you feel like kind of out of it. Like uh-huh. I, I wouldn't want to have, I wouldn't want to have the nuclear codes while I was on uh, steroids. But here's, here's the thing that I've also been thinking about. Like President Trump seems so determined to project like masculinity, like this version of of masculinity, which is like never admitting you're sick, never being sick, continuing to work while you're sick, even though that might be endangering other people. Grace, what do you make of that? Is that an attitude that you've seen mirrored in kind of other toxic men that you've known? And what do you think the remedy is? What's the cure? You know, I have seen women do that too. I think unfortunately in the last few years, maybe even few decades, we've gotten to a point where we're so focused on being as productive as possible. Uh, and I, you know, and, and I think that I want to say that this COVID experience, this pandemic experience might hopefully slow us down a little bit. But, uh, you know, I see it in women too. Yeah, this need to push through whatever it is to apologize when we feel sick and need to stay home. Um, I think the best manifestation of this coming out of, and by best, I mean absolutely worst and most disgusting manifestation of this coming out of Trump's current experience is that fucking movie trailer thing that he posted a couple days ago on Twitter mm-hmm. with the helicopter flying down and this like, you know, John Williams style, like epic swooping music, just like it's it's awful. It's like it's making triumphant what should be just a little quieter. And I just wish I just wish that he would slow down because it it tells the nation that it's okay to be sick and to take a little bit of time for yourself. And that's not ever going to happen with Trump. It's just not. I find it really frustrating. And again, it's not just with men. I think it's with women too. I think women feel the need to push through whatever ailments we have. And when you don't have people in leadership positions who understand the need to take care of yourself first, put on your mask, literally put on your mask before you put on anybody else's. Um, I think we're just going to continue to perpetuate that type of, you know, that type of attitude that just ultimately breaks you down quicker, unless you're Trump, Mm -hmm. you know, unless somehow magically you're able to get through a pandemic like this fairly unscathed. I mean, but do we know that he's unscathed? Like, I feel like a lot of he's still got the virus and I feel like we don't really know. We've seen long-term effects of in people that have, you know, similar biological profiles to Donald Trump. And that's a polite way to say like, you know, he's, he's a, he's an old guy who eats trash all day and his weight is not within the range that doctors consider healthy. Mm -hmm. So like, that's, I, I, do you feel like he's, do you feel like he's to use a, a maybe to to coin a metaphor? Do you think he's maybe minting the North Korea summit coin a little bit too early here, Alyssa? I have something to say about this. The White House gift shop is selling a Trump defeats COVID coin. No. Yes. 
If you go to whitehousegiftshop.com or whatever it is, I lost my fucking mind. I was like, are you kidding me? And I didn't know if he meant like the disease writ large, like at large, or him personally defeating COVID. I guess my feeling on him is that like everything else, he's a fucking fraud. Like he has COVID. I think he's probably got it pretty bad. But the dexamethasone, which he is not being honest about, and we have to rely on Sanjay Gupta, may he win a medal of freedom at some point, for (laughs) saying that like the dexamethasone actually suppresses the symptoms, not the disease itself. And so we have no idea how Trump is doing. And, you know, like we kind of deserve to know because he makes such a show of it. You know, know, that's the thing. And you know who really needs to know about it is fucking Biden because God forbid Trump insists on doing that debate on Tuesday. This is a thing I'm very worried about. I mean, the contact tracing obviously has been non-existent. That's incredibly frustrating for the people who work in his administration, the Secret Service, the people who work in the White House itself. But I worry about Biden. I mean, the guy, you know, like I think we all are, not just because he's the, the you know, the, the person who's running against him, but also because he is older himself. And when Trump isn't honest about his condition and when his doctors aren't honest about his condition, that puts so many more people in the line of fire than it would otherwise. Yeah, the contact tracing thing is really upsetting. And then, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday and the vice presidential debate will be, will have happened by the time people listen to this. Mm-hmm. And Mike Pence whining and mewling about having to, like having any precautions being taken at the debate is just so, you know what it reminded me of. And Tell us. I let me apologize in advance. First of all, this comparison has been made before uh, by me on Twitter a long time ago. And also I know like relatives of like my, my in-laws listen to this. <laughs> so I, I apologize guys. Um, you know what it reminds me of? Um, it reminds me of when I was younger and single and going out with a guy and getting to the point where we were about to have sex and being like, put on a condom and he just acts all of a sudden instant fucking baby just becomes a whiny ass baby about it. Mm-hmm. And it just, all of these guys, it just, it it's like all of these guys in the GOP, which has become a party that has no platform apart from just being an asshole all the time. Just whatever the situation is, just be an asshole. And that's what the party stands for. It just seems like a whole party of guys that like are whining about having to put on a condom. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like as, <laughs> it's not even a condom. It's a face mask. And it's Standing, it's not like your sensation of being alive is diminished that much by putting on a face mask and standing back from people. Like, I kind of, I mean, I've I've thought about this and it's made me pretty mad this week. Just the narrative of Donald Trump trying to cast himself as a warrior. He's a warrior because he defeated COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, if I, you know, if if I had, uh, I don't know you know, thrown a javelin up in the air and then got impaled by the javelin, would I try to brag about having gotten hit by a javelin that I threw up in the air? Like, no, I put myself in a position to get an easily avoidable disease. Like, not only did we have information about how to avoid it, Donald Trump is the person who is the most empowered in the world to avoid having that disease. Whatever he asked people around him to do, they would have done. 
A, because he's surrounded by boot lickers, but B, because he's the president. Uh You know, Uh like you're not going to violate social distancing if the president is demanding it. Um, Alyssa, what do you make of the warrior uh, retelling of this story? Uh, Right. So one thing that I've always said is that one of the greatest upsides of working in the West Wing is the White House medical unit. Like, they can fix you, right? So one, huge leg up. Second, he's not a warrior. He shouldn't have gotten it in the first place. Like, he's the president of the United States with all precautions taken around him. The only person not take, well, and I mean from like, support staff, secret service, house staff, resident staff. I don't mean his political appointees who are flaunting uh, their their uh, COVID. Here's the thing. If he was a warrior, true warrior, uh, he'd be able to engage in physical activity. He'd never seen that. <laughs> if he were a true warrior, he uh, might have empathy. He might be mentally stable. He might have um, – what else might be rational? I mean, he's not really a warrior. He's just kind of like a malignant tumor. <laughs> like that's really all he is. <laughs> you know, he's aggressive and he hurts things. That's a malignant tumor. That's not a warrior. He's not Wonder Woman. He's not anything that Dwayne Johnson has been. <laughs> like he is, he is just a malignant tumor. That's it. Sorry, Trump. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here's here's another thing I was thinking about this week. Uh, Twitter decided to enact a new policy where people are going to start being um, punished, banned, punished, uh, suspended for uh, wishing death on President Trump. And in no way are we wishing death on anybody here. I 100% draw the line at that. But, uh, you know, I, I found that I think that as women who have been online for quite some time, we would have something to say about that. Grace, um, what do you think about Twitter's sudden change of heart? It's just, it's so, it's too little too late, y'all. It's too little too late. And I just wish that we could do, I just wish that there could be some sort of mass exodus away from Twitter. I am so guilty myself of being a cog in the wheel comedy writer who the second there's any sort of breaking news, you go onto Twitter and you're like, ooh, what tasted little joke do I have now? Oh, let's see if I can get 300 likes this time. Whatever fucking chemical bullshit. You know, we all have it. We all have it in us. And I so badly wish, and I know it's as easy as just getting off it, but you guys also know there's an accessibility thing with Twitter that makes it so easy to continue to get those hits of serotonin every time we pop online. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's too little too late, but it's been anarchy on Twitter for so long anyway that I, I don't know. I just, I don't know what, I I don't know what they could do at this point to make it better for anybody, really. I mean, we kind of, you have to know what you're getting into now when you're on Twitter. Their fucking role, though, is only about Donald Trump. Tons of yeah. people get death threats. Twitter doesn't give a shit. Like, no. like it's like you can't wish death on Trump, but everyone else who checks their mentions and they're like, die, bitch, and you report it, they're like, it's not really a direct threat. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it I was really some, a creative response. It so, was. You know. It was an opinion. <laughs> I, had, I had somebody tweet for, like, years ago for every day I would have a different, like, sock puppet account tweet a picture of a gutted fish at me. Which, mm. uh, which actually could, you know, couldn't, I took it as a threat because it is a threat to get pictures of gutted fish tweeted at you every day. Um, but I never got any relief when I reported it. It's just like I, the, th- the reason that, that Twitter needs to make a 
special policy against wishing death on Donald Trump is because Donald Trump has been such a terrible president that, and hurt so many people. And so many people are so angry at him that I think that people kind of lack the restraint to not just be like, fuck you, dude. Like when given a forum in which they could theoretically connect with somebody who has done what they see as such harm to them. I am not making excuses for people, but I am pointing out that Twitter, people hate Donald Trump so much that Twitter had to make a policy being like, guys, stop, stop saying it. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that's all, that's all that I want. I want him, you know, here's the thing. I want Donald Trump to recover from COVID. I want him to lose the election in November. And I want it to be a fucking landslide. Yes. And I want him to mm -hmm. leave office. And once he leaves office, I want him to live a life that is long enough for him to see his kids go to jail. That's, that's what I truly, that's my, that in my heart, that is truly what I want for him. And Playing the long game. I love it. I love it. And I agree. And for the SDNY to have their way with him. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like we're, we're doing like, like bad prayers, like mean prayers. Um, Look, <laughs> this is the Ouija board section of this, of this show. <laughs> I mean, Halloween is coming up and it is going to be a very unspooktacular Halloween, unfortunately. Were you guys allowed to do Ouija boards when you were growing up? Mm-hmm. I was not. They were, my mom is so, so like, you know, kooky with the spirituality, not allowed in the house at all. Really? And I would go over to sleepovers and she'd be like, you better not do one of those Ouija boards, Grace. And I'd be like, oh, I, I won't, mom. And I would be terrified. They'd pop out on occasion during the sleepover and I wouldn't, I couldn't do it because I was too afraid, too oh afraid of the spirits coming out. I don't know what spirits, but I, I was a Ouija board one. fanatic. <laughs> you, oh, what, really? Did you, did you learn anything ever from your Ouija board? Yeah, that I could make it say what I wanted by pushing hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Here's, you know, speaking of like, like spiritual whatever practices, Alyssa, you and I were texting about this this week and I've been thinking about it. Like I'm not, I've made it clear on this show that I'm not a believer in astrology. I have friends that really like to consult it. They're real Nancy Reagans, if you will. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I wonder with all of the complete chaos that has happened since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I'm not implying that her vengeful, tiny little ghost is doing what she will with the world. I'm not implying that at all. But I... Uh, I, I have been, you know, noticing that things are even more chaotic than normal. So I, I, uh -huh. I kind of wonder, like... I wonder if there is some like ancient spiritual tradition that has some insight into like what the <laughs> fuck is going on. If there's any sense to be made of right now or if it like everything else just isn't is not destined to make any narrative sense. Like you see people talking about like, oh, the writers of America, the season finale of America. That's yeah, been like yeah, a yeah. joke that's been going on for like years now. Every we'll have a chaotic weekend and someone will be like America's season finale is crazy. But like, I just wonder if finally we're getting to a point where maybe part of the reason that so many people are reacting to the news of all of these people getting sick with a combination of anger, derision, and like wry amusement, because this is the first time in a really long time that anything has made narrative sense. Like it makes sense yeah. that a group of people who flout the rules of 
pandemics during a pandemic, it makes sense that they would start getting sick. You uh-huh. know, finally, it is a thing that makes sense. Um, and, and I just, and I'm not saying again, I, I know people are going to be like, you guys are being real cunts. And yes, we absolutely are. You don't need to tell us that. Except for, <laughs> no, except for not, not Grace. Grace is being nice. Um, but Alyssa and I, oh, thank you. we're being cunts. But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, you want to see people who are the cause of problems have some kind of consequence. Yeah. Here's the thing. Would you watch a movie or continue to watch movies where there is no outcome? <laughs> like yeah. where there is a terrible per- – let's go back to my love of law and order, SVU. Uh, would I continue to watch SVU if they didn't fucking get the rapist at the end? No, I wouldn't because we want justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, gr- I agree. As a writer, also, you want your antagonist to learn a fucking lesson. Mm-hmm. And I don't think our antagonist here has learned that lesson yet. What I will say is that the longer your antagonist goes without learning a lesson, the bigger that lesson should be at the end. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Great. But the, the problem is that I don't know, I don't know when that's coming. That's why Scorsese movies have that always have a scene where like everyone is getting arrested spectacularly. You know, there's always like the slow motion scene oh, with it's like so opera, opera yep. playing in the yep. background, and suddenly, you know, you know, somebody's turning around in slow motion and seeing the police <laughs> closing in on me on them, and then they all of a sudden, you know, they cut to something else. I mean, Grace, I think you might be onto something. There needs to be a big lesson at the end of this for it to to be narratively satisfying. But the problem is, mm-hmm. things aren't always narratively satisfying. Um, Alyssa, like, what would make this whole arc? feel like it had an outcome. Like, apart from people getting, I mean, like Grace said, you know, Trump hasn't learned his lesson. He's ripping his mask off as he's gasping for air on the steps of the White House. He's working from the Oval Office. He's trying to have a debate with with Joe Biden. What would constitute him learning a lesson? So here's the thing. Truthfully, I do think he is, he may actually be incapable. Like, you need certain levels of emotion and reason and and mm-hmm. and rationality, I think, to be able to internalize a lesson, uh, to see that something, you know, that cause and effect. Like, I, I don't totally know he's understood cause and effect. Here's the one thing I know, that we have to take some little comfort in. You know he's scared shitless. He is a germaphobe. He hates hospitals. And we know he's sick. He's telling us he's not sick, but we know he's sick. And so the only – he's never going to come out. I had this completely insane moment the other night after they said that he was sick and they were taking him to Walter Reed. And I was like, this is it. This is going to be our downfall because he's going to come out of being sick from COVID and be like, I see you. I feel you. I hear you. I can't believe I didn't see how bad this was going to be. And then everyone's going to be like, give him another chance. We're not in danger of that. That's not happening. So the <laughs> he only say, thing- He said that one tweet. He was like, I know. I learned my lesson. Or no, that video where he was like, I went to the real school. But then yep, he yep, immediately yep. forgot yeah. the school. But he was like puffed up like Weekend at Bernie's. And I'm just like, <laughs> so the only, the only thing that we can, that makes me calm right now is that I know that he's like, terrified and that pretending to be something that you're not is really hard. And like he's pretended to be president, which didn't seem that hard for him actually. But pretending not to be scared and pretending to be healthy seem like hurdles for him to jump that will be difficult. So I'm just going to take some solace in the fact that I know he's scared. Yeah. He's having a bad time. Mm -hmm. Um, Grace, you mentioned 
like finding ways to be sympathetic for people. So let's end this conversation with some tips from Grace on like when you're feeling ugly inside, how do you find, how do you climb out of that and like find ways to not feel ugly? How do you feel less ugly when, when somebody you really, really cannot stand is sick in a way that feels like it could maybe be justice? Okay. I have two, I have two quick remedies. One is there's always shit going down in people's lives that you don't know about. And knowing that they're probably suffering through something that's pretty indescribable that you would never want to go through yourself. Imagining that there's something internal that they're dealing with that they will never share with you is a little bit helpful. The other thing is there's a great show on HBO Max that's called The Great Pottery Throwdown. And I have been watching it every single night, guys. It is the greatest antidote to everything that's going on in the world right now. I don't know if any of our beautiful listeners are also watching the show. It is so good. It is just these wonderful, kind British people throwing clay. And Niall and I have watched all three seasons that are available in the last, like, two weeks. It's so good. It's so good. And so if you need to calm down from the situation, if you need a little bit of distance, if you're feeling that ugliness and anger inside of you building, I highly recommend this show. You will love it. Everyone is kind. They make tiled toilets for each other. It's chef's kiss. Okay. You know if I watch this, I'm going to come in next week looking like Demi Moore in Ghost. <laughs> hopefully yes. not a ghost. But true, a- true, 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 true. Uh, not with not with Patrick Swayze or anything like that. Um, oh my God, Alyssa, that is literally the only like farm. I guess blacksmithery. You haven't become a blacksmith yet. It's a matter you of haven't, time. You haven't gotten uh-huh, into pottery. Uh-huh. Pottery is the next thing. You'll love it. You'll love blacksmithery. It. My winter. I, I don't think that's the word. I think I used the wrong word. Okay. Um, Grace, that's it. That's a great note to end on. Trying to find like some ways to you know, retreat to the positivity, even when you're feeling like schadenfreude, ugly, negative stuff. Um, All right, Grace and Alyssa, stick around. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I feel petty because why the fuck not? All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Okay, we're back. Grace and Alyssa are still with me, and we've gotten to the part of the show where we take petty stances on things that don't actually matter. It's I feel petty. Okay, I'm going to get started 
uh, because mine is probably worse than both of yours, and I want to get it out of the way. Okay. Um, but a, a story that got kind of buried in that nightmare week of news for the Trump White House was the story of Melania Trump hating decorating for Christmas and also uh, basically not giving a fuck, confirming exactly what we thought about who she is when it comes to kids separated from their parents at the border. Uh, I really think that, you know, I don't like Christmas creep. I don't like when Christmas steps past Halloween. I feel I find that totally uncalled for. But in this case, I will make an exception. I feel like Melania being crankier than a wet cat <laughs> about about decorating the White House for Christmas, which is like sounds like the most fun, like cool job. She has one like that's her job. That's her only job is to do that. I just love it. I think that we need to dwell in the fact that Melania like hates Christmas, hates children. All mm -hmm. she wants to do is sit around and like whine at her friends on the phone. I just love it. I feel petty about the fact that that recording is out there. And I really hope that her former best friend has more recordings because I really want to hear more of Melania being a total bitch. That's what I feel petty about. I love it. I love it so much. You know what? The best thing about that, too, is Melania doesn't even have to go acquire any of the things for Christmas. She just has to look at some pictures and say, get these, and then and put them up. <laughs> and the real story is that who Christmas is truly wonderful for in the White House are the volunteers who apply months in advance to put the decorations <laughs> oh up. Oh, my God. Like, not only does she hate Christmas, which, Erin, you're going to laugh because that was actually my feel petty, too. <laughs> I was like, she didn't get roasted enough for this, and I guess she's fine, so we can make fun of her now. But no, let's make Christmas, a double. Let's double team her. Christmas <laughs> is the best the holidays, not just Christmas, the holidays are the best time of year at the White House. When Barack Obama was elected president, George Bush, his chief of staff, invited me and my deputy over to the White House under the pretense of a meeting just so that they could give us a tour of the Christmas decorations because they said when we came into office, we would never enjoy the decorations as much as we would at this moment when it was just like, and it was beautiful. It's like the Christmas trees. I'm sorry. She dressed the place like fucking Handmaid's Tale two years ago or whatever that was. <laughs> but like, it's not hard. It's not hard. It's like, it's not hard to want to do things for other people. It's not for her. It's for all the people who come through on tours. It's for all the members of the military who bring their families through. She's such a cunt. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to say from the other side of it, um, as a member of the press, I got invited to a couple White House Christmas parties at, or yeah, during Obama's uh, tenure. And I attended two of them. And it was like, I Lovely. felt like it was incredible. I felt like I was in a, a magical like wonderland. There's a room full of Christmas trees decorated with themes of different books that the first lady liked. Yeah. And there was like just magical like smorgasbords of like the cheese selection. I've never seen a better cheese the eggnog. in all the eggnog is incredible. It's just, and the people that are attending like that party was all like journalists. Like it was, and not like super highfalutin journalists. It was like me, I was a blogger, you know, when, and, and I got invited to that and it, it was such a special experience. And I did see Maureen Dowd looking surly and like frowning by herself in a stairwell, which also felt very decorative to me. And of course, <laughs> watching Maureen Dowd scowl and just feel sorry for herself, whatever she was thinking just was very, very 
festive for me. Um, and it just, you're, Alyssa, you're totally right. And from somebody who's working on the on the inside, it doesn't surprise me that that act of decorating the White House for people to come through and enjoy it, it was like so wonderful. And I can't believe that she's complaining about that. Can I tell you, this is uh, this is both a terrible story, but also why I hate what she said so much. So uh, the Sandy Hook shooting, Newtown, happened on a Friday in December. Christmas decorations were up. People had been flying in. We're getting the news of what's happening. I'm in the Oval Office with Barack Obama. And I said, don't worry. Uh, I'm going to tell everyone who's over for the Christmas parties. These were real people who had flown in, not like staff or anything. I said, I'm going to tell them all that you can't come. And he was so bereft. And he was like, you know what? People save up all year to come and experience the White House at the holidays. I, I owe it to them to go say something. And she can't Ugh. get out of bed to Ugh. fucking come up with a scheme for decorations when it is. And I we're not saying, I want to be very clear, we're not saying that first ladies jobs are only the decorating. It's that she does so little. This is mm -hmm. literally yeah. all she has to do for the next couple of months. And she's so snide and like, ugh, fucking decorations. Like, I give a shit about that. Fuck you. Yeah, I mean, I guess that explains that that statue of Melania that just looks like a lump of tree. In her country, they don't believe in decorating or making anything look nice. Um, okay. Grace, Grace, what's your I Feel Petty this week? Okay. My, my I Feel Petty, um, I'm sticking with the theme of TV shows. Been watching a lot these days. Again, this is all good departure from what's going on in the world around us. For those of you who are watching The Vow, the docuseries <laughs> about sex cult Nexium, which I'm highly addicted to. My I feel petty is that I don't want to give too much away of the plot, but this is also available online. There are a group of people who are trying to rally against Nexium, the sex cult, because they have been branded near their vaginas and all sorts of other terrible things. Okay, really bad stuff. So, like, it's with reason. So they defect from Nexium, and then there's a sequence of a couple of episodes within the show where you see these people, and they're like, their story should be told. Thank God they're telling the story. Thank goodness that they got out of the sex cult. But the way that they are so excited about getting coverage from the New York Times, and this happened during the Me Too, when everything was happening with the Me Too movement. And there are a couple people who are like, in the moment, so excited about the fact that they're able to piggyback off of the Me Too movement for their sex cult purposes. They're like, oh my God, this Me Too movement thing is so great for us. It's really, really good. It's just going to help expand our coverage. And the whole thing is disgusting to me. I just feel so petty about the fact that I love their mission. I'm on board for them escaping their sex cult. Praise be, you know, under his <laughs> eye. If you're able to escape your sex cult, I am with you. But if you're so fucking pumped about getting on the cover of New York Magazine, there's something weird and twisted about it. And also, all these people are just wealthy white folks who don't have jobs, who can just escape from whatever it is their day-to-day -day is to spend time taking classes from a guy who loves fucking volleyball because that's all the next team <laughs> is. It is a joy to watch, and it's also infuriating. And that is my... I feel petty this week. Ugh. Yeah, I that 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 show is interesting. It's one of those shows that I'm like, I kind of liked it better when it was an article, when I could yes. just read the article. You know, like I don't need this to be eight hours of my life. I took forty minutes reading the article, and now I know yeah. all the stuff. 
I would also like to recommend the Lifetime movie version of it, which is a nice crisp two hours (laughs) (laughs) with bathroom breaks. And so (laughs) a story that needed to be told, but maybe just window down a bit. Just tighten it up. Don't be so fast and loose with our time. Um, Grace Parra, thank you so much for stopping by today. My ladies, a delight as always. Thank you. It was it was so fun. And guys, I'm sorry again I forgot what time zone I was in cuz that did happen today for the first <laughs> time. Did we suffer? Did we suffer? We no, had a no, ball. We had a ball. We, we, we had a catch had up. a ball. Yeah. Thanks to uh, my ride or die, Alyssa Mastromonaco, for being with me again this week. And thanks to Stacey Abrams. That is a sentence that I love saying. <laughs> thanks to Stacey Abrams not only for joining us on the show today, but for everything that she does. And thanks to you Our listeners, there will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmel Konian and Matt DeGroot. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week.